The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, we do thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that it's because of the blood of Christ that we can even come to you this evening in prayer. We thank you that you saw us as your enemies and you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And Lord, I thank you for the reminder that all the songs that we've sung tonight just have pointed us to the cross and to what Christ did for us. And Lord, as much as we know that Jesus died for us, I think very often um, we let that knowledge sink to the back of our mind and we get so consumed with day-to-day activities. And God, we need to keep our eyes on the cross and remember what you've done. And because of that, Lord, it should change how we view everything in our lives. It should change how we approach this world and, and we think about this life compared to eternity, that we don't live for just today, that we live for forever because we know that the blood of Christ has cleansed us. And Lord, because of what you've done, we ought to live to obey you and to serve you and to please you and glorify you. So God, I pray as we approach your word tonight that you'd give us um, hearts that are submissive to your will. And I pray the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and convict us and help us to leave this place with a desire to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming this evening. It's good to have you here with us. Um, we've spent the last seven months or so in a mini-series on the Apostle Peter. So I thought I'd call this lesson, now this is what you call an introduction. Because I guess the seven-month series is not usually how you do an introduction to a book. However, what we've done over the last seven months is look at the life of the Apostle Peter and see his actions and see how God discipled him. How God took this man who was once a fisherman with a foot-shaped mouth, right? He was once a guy who just always said the wrong thing at the wrong time. He wasn't well-educated. He wasn't brilliant. He wasn't incredibly handsome. He He had no massively great qualities going for him. And God took this man and made him into Peter, the rock. The one who would go out with with the other apostles and start the church and see God work and be this incredible leader that God made him to be. And we see that happen through the course of Peter's life. And for me, it's been a wonderful journey to watch God mold Peter. Now, you might think seven months is a long time to go through one person's life, but when you look at the Bible, do you know that there's 210 times that Peter's name is mentioned in the New Testament? And you compare that to Paul, who's 156 times, or all of the rest of the apostles combined at 143 times. It kind of makes sense that we'd spend seven months in Peter's life. But now we finally move from Peter's life and what he did and how God taught him to now what Peter sat, when he sat down to write to other believers, what he decided was important enough to write. Now, certainly we know that it was the Holy Spirit of God that inspired his words. But we do see much of what Peter learned now coming through in what he wrote to us in 1 Peter. So I'm looking forward to the series, looking forward to the next few months going through it, maybe a year or so, who knows. Um, but it's going to be a good time going through the words of Peter. And I think it's helpful for us to set the stage because we, we realize that as we go through Peter's life, we see that the first few years we meet Peter as his journey as he follows Christ while Jesus is still here on earth. So we we get to walk with Peter as Peter walks with Jesus, literally. 
But eventually Jesus dies and rises again and goes to heaven. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Spirit of God to empower Peter. And so the last few months we've spent in Peter's life after Jesus is resurrected. So now it's Peter walking with Jesus as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And since that time, we see a marked difference in Peter's life and a difference in what Peter has to go through. And so Jesus rises again. The very first thing that happened is Pentecost. And now Peter is boldly proclaiming the gospel in front of over, in front of thousands of people. The same people he was a coward before in front of, now he's boldly proclaiming Christ crucified. And in the process, he is slightly ridiculed for his faith. And then we find him healing a beggar at the beautiful gate. And as he does this, he gets an opportunity again to preach the gospel. And and as he opens up the word of God and he tells the Jews how to be saved, the high priests take offense to what he's saying. And so they arrest him and they put him in prison with John. And the next day they take him out. They put him on trial. After he speaks, they decide that it's best to threaten him and then let him go. Well, a little while later, again, him and the apostles are in the temple preaching. And this time, they're once again arrested for what they're doing. They're put in prison. They're miraculously released from prison. So they go back to the temple preaching. And then they're put on trial with the Sanhedrin again. This time, they're beaten severely. And then threatened once again and released. And kind of what we see in Peter's life after Christ is resurrected is that it seems like he goes from ridicule to threaten to threaten and beating. And it just it seems to get worse and worse for Peter. And then Peter has to face some of his own prejudices when he um, has to go share the gospel with Cornelius. He has to stand at the Jerusalem Council and fight for Cornelius and fight for Gentiles that they can be saved by grace through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And so this is what Peter has been going through. And what he has seen in the time that he has been working with the church and in the church and in the time that he's been spreading the gospel is that persecution and struggle have gotten worse and worse. So Pentecost, it was like the clearest day. I mean, there was a little bit of ridicule, but he gets up and he preaches and many people are saved. And from that point on, it just gets harder and harder for him. There are more and more roadblocks put in his way. And so Peter is writing from the perspective that the Christian life is hard and you shouldn't expect it to get easier. And so let's jump right into the text and then we'll we'll back up and look a little bit at the life of the Jews and the believers that are in the area that he describes in just a moment. So we'll jump right into the text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied. Michael, can you bring up the map for just a second here? I want to give you a few basic facts about the book that hopefully will give it a little bit of context. And I think Peter actually does this for us. And so the first thing that Peter does is he introduces himself as the author. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle not just not just in a name, but what he's doing is he's trying to signify his authority. So the word apostle means messenger, but he was made an apostle by Jesus Christ. He is an ambassador or a messenger of Christ. The man who was once Simon the fisherman is now Peter, 
the apostle. And he's writing from, we find in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, the church that is at Babylon. So the very end of the book, he sends greetings from the church at Babylon. And there's been a lot of discussion about exactly what the church of Babylon is. So I want to give you just an idea on the map. And I know you're probably really confused at what you're seeing right now. But this is the areas that he lists. Okay, so we have uh, Bithynia, Pontus, um, Asia, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia. Okay, so those are the areas that he lists. Now, the question is, when he's writing from Babylon, where is he writing from? Well, there's this city in Mesopotamia right here called Babylon. Okay, now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Babylon at one point was the, the strongest nation in the world. They're the ones that carried the, the Jews in Judea and in, um, in Judah and in the tribe of Benjamin captive. And so at one point they were the world leaders, but the, the Greeks and the Romans have since um, kind of destroyed them. And now we just have this one city called Babylon that's left over and it's still a part of the Roman Empire. And so some people say, well, it seems like Peter is at this place called Babylon on the Euphrates River. However, there's no indication in the book of Acts or in any of church history that Peter ever went this direction or even that churches were started in this direction early on in church history. It seems like what happened is the, the gospel went from Judea up to Samaria and then up this way to where about Antioch would be, and then it traveled westward, a little bit north and west. And so it went toward Rome. And what's interesting is a lot of people, a lot of the Jews would refer to Rome or the Roman government as their Babylon because what Babylon is famous for is carrying Jews into exile. So they were the, the Babylonian captives for a while, and now they view themselves as the Roman captives. So what church history tells us is that eventually uh, Peter, along with Paul, was... Uh, put on a Roman cross upside down in Rome. And this would be Rome right here. And it makes sense that Peter would be sending greetings from the church of Babylon, referring to the church at Rome at this time. Church history tells us that's the way he went. And a few years after he wrote this, we know he was killed there for his faith by Nero. And so I believe personally, this is where he's running from. Now, we've got to figure out who he's writing to. And I've already said he's writing to believers in this area. But i got to tell you, the, the question of who he's writing to specifically is the one that I probably spent most time on and the one that I was most baffled by as I did this study. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. He makes it very clear who he's writing to. Right? In, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, To the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But who are the strangers that are scattered? I mean, exactly who is he referring to here? And so this is, this, I'm just going to kind of lay out for you how my mind went as I studied this. The first thing I thought is, okay, well, the word strangers, it's parapidemos, and it means foreigners or pilgrims or aliens. So we have these, these people who are pilgrims. They're not citizens of that land. They're foreigners in the land. And the word strangers is diaspora, which is of the dispersion. And, and it's, it, I mean, the word diaspora 
was very, very often linked to Jews, and it signified the Jews of the diaspora or of the dispersion were the Jews that no longer lived in the promised land. Okay? So I, I saw that, and I was like, okay, we're talking about strangers, people that are scattered in the diaspora. We're talking about the dispersions. I mean, we're talking about the Jews who must be believers in these regions. Okay? That was my first thought. Okay? And, and honestly, that's, that's where my mind went for, uh, I was there for a couple weeks, thinking, okay, this is who he's talking about. So these, this, this book is written to these Jews that are in this region that is primarily not a Jewish land. So I'm trying to figure out how, okay, how does this exactly apply to us? But then I realized, as I read it a few more times, that he never specifically said Jews. Now, he's writing as a Jew from a Jewish background, and so he would have this whole idea of the diaspora in his mind, of what it means for Jews to be captives in a land that's not their own, to not be citizens of that land. But he never specifically said he was writing to Jews. And, and, and then, I, I mean, I continue to read, and I realize that the description here isn't over. Because between verse 1 and 2, there isn't a period. He's not finishing his thought. In fact, the, the very next word is a word that is speaking about the strangers that are scattered. So all the reasons they're scattered to are almost inconsequential at this point to figure out who those people who are scattered are. Um, and so the very next word in verse 2 says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So these are strangers that are elect. These are elect strangers according to the foreknowledge of God. That, that's who he's speaking about. In fact, a lot of uh, translations will, will try, and, try and gather that thought into one, that these are elect strangers. And so now I'm, now I'm kind of going in a little bit of a different direction. And now I think what Peter's doing is he's trying to teach these people who they are and what they're there for, and he's not specifically speaking about Jews. He is saying that where you are, you believers in Bithynia, in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, you believers are strangers who are scattered. Okay? I don't care where you think you're from. I don't care what your birth certificate says. I don't care what you say your citizenship is. You are strangers that are scattered. But we're not just strangers that are scattered. You're elect strangers that are scattered. In fact, it almost seems like this elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, is the reason that you're strangers that are scattered. Okay? Now, this, this thought is, is really big for us. Because it takes it from, okay, he's speaking to Jews who are believers then, which is still maybe applicable to us, to saying, okay, he's actually speaking to believers who are potentially citizens of that land, but now should be considered to be elect strangers who are scattered. In the same way that the Jews were exiles in their land. So you get, you get the picture? They were taken from their land by a king when they didn't want to be. They were taken from their land. They were brought into this new land. That's what happened. When, when uh, the king of Babylon, when the king of Assyria went into Israel and to, to Judah, they would take these people, and in order to make sure that the army didn't amass again, that they didn't group together, they would just send Jews all over the world so that they were so scattered 
that now they, they weren't able to get an army together. And so now he's saying, you believers are elect exiles. You're, you're scattered abroad, but you are elect. But he's, he's drawing this kind of parallel for us to see. And it helps us to say, okay, believers in Canada, elect exiles, right? Scattered abroad, but citizens of heaven. We have a father now, a father who has foreordained, who has foreknown us. And so this is a wonderful truth for believers today because it says that we're more than just Canadians. It says that, that this world is not our citizenship. It's not our home. It says that we have a different citizenship and a different home. And that's what he's trying to get across. And so the very first thing that he wants these people to know is he wants them to know who they are. Can you imagine getting this letter and, and, and reading it and having Peter the apostle introduce himself and then say, and I'm writing to you who is a stranger scattered? That would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? You'd be like, no, I, I'm a Roman citizen. I've lived here my whole life. I'm not a stranger scattered. So you realize what he's talking about. And you realize the mindset that a Christian ought to have back then and the mindset that a Christian ought to have now. What does it mean? That they were like strangers. They were strangers because they didn't do everything their culture did. They were strangers because they would not bow their knee to Caesar as everyone else would. They were strangers because they believed what God says rather than what is trendy in modern culture. Did you get that? I mean, so many of the things that, that are bombarding us as Christians, so much of the worldview, it's brand new to this generation. And next generation will have a brand new worldview. And so we need to be very careful not to allow the worldview of our culture, of the people who are citizens of this land, affect the worldview of those who are citizens of heaven. We need to be careful that we are building everything we believe and everything we think about whatever subject comes up on the foundation of the Word of God. And that is that is this like very subtle reminder for the believers that he's writing to right off the start of the letter. He wants them to get, this is who you are. And it's going to make so much more sense when they understand who they are after he goes through all the suffering that they're going to go through in this letter. All of what he speaks about makes sense when you realize that this world is not your home, that heaven is your home, that, that this life is, is just this one life, but there's eternal life where there's no more pain, no more tears, and, and nothing terrible to happen in the future. Right? When there's heaven to look forward to, then you can suffer in this present time, and it's okay. That's how he begins. We need to understand who he's speaking to, and I think it's helpful to understand the world that these believers were living in at the time. Persecution of Christians was not invented by Muslim people living in militant Muslim countries like Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, and you can go on and on. It's not... Muslims of today that have invented the persecution of Christians, right? We hear about it a lot in the news nowadays. But do you realize that Christians have been persecuted since the inception of the church? It, the persecution started very localized around Jerusalem. Do you know why it started localized in Jerusalem? That's where the church started. And as the church grew and went to different places, the persecution took different forms and was done by different people, but it was always done. 
And eventually, it changed from being the Jewish leaders who were persecuting the church to, you know what, this is a threat against Rome. These Christians, they won't bow their knee to Caesar. Why don't they have to bow their knee to Caesar? Now they're not protected under, well, they're just, they're just kind of a sect of Judaism. Now they're their, their own religion, and they worship Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's not okay for people who live in a place where you were expected to bow the knee to Caesar. And so they were persecuted. And it, it was kind of like this whole setting was developing into a time where an, an emperor would come on the stage who would be very proud and a little bit maybe insane, and he would start mass persecution of Christians. And so do you know who became the emperor in AD 54? Nero. So now we have Nero as the emperor during the time that this book is written. And for the first few years, Nero wasn't all that bad, but eventually he decided that it was a good idea just to kill every person he thought was a threat to his throne. So he killed his brother-in-law, he killed his mother, uh, he killed a number of other people who were very close to him. And, and when he heard that there were Christians that wouldn't bow down to him, it upset him. And so uh, historians like Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio reported that what Nero would do is he would take a Christian, he would dip them in either wax or oil for a while, and then he would put them in his garden and light them as a candle. And they would burn. And that's, I mean, that's how he had light in his garden. This is the type of man that Nero was. And so now Peter is writing in the, to these people living in Rome, and the persecution is just getting started. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse. It, it hasn't got to this level where, where there was just massive organized persecution across the whole land yet. Okay, not yet but it was kind of heading that direction. And so that's what the believers he's writing to are facing. And so Peter begins by reminding them that that might, might be what you're facing, but you are strangers in this land, that you are citizens of heaven. And so what I want to do just in the last few moments we have together is I, I want to kind of bring to bear in our own lives those couple truths that Peter begins with in his letter. The very first thing he wants them to know is that he knows who they are. He knows who they are. He knows that they're strangers. He knows that they're scattered. He knows that they're suffering. But he also knows that this world is not their home. They are elect and foreknown of God. He simultaneously simultaneously reminds them that they have a loving father who has foreknown them and chosen them. This is an incredible truth. This is a wonderful thing. Now, as soon as I say those words, some of you who know of a, a dispute between Calvinism and Arminianism immediately perk up and go, okay, what are you going to say about this? All right. Now, before we actually get into that, and I'm not going to get into that big time tonight, but listen, why can't we just glory in the fact that the Bible says we are foreknown of God and chosen by God? Those are two beautiful, beautiful words that speak of believers. They're two loving and kind words. Isn't it good to know that your Heavenly Father chose you? He, he knew you for, before the foundation of the world? It's, it's an incredible truth. Now, from my theological perspective, 
I see that God's election is somehow based on his foreknowledge. But when we think about this, when we try and figure out exactly how this all works out, this, this, how God's foreknowledge and his choosing happens, can I remind you that we serve a God who transcends time? So he's outside of time. He is in the beginning. He is in the end. There's not this whole, like, him seeing the linear future, trying to look down into the future and see how things happen. He is there. And so the first question I would ask is, how is a God who is at the beginning and at the end foreknowing and choosing? I mean, we don't even, our minds can't comprehend even that thought, right? But what we do know in the text is that somehow... God's foreknowing and his choosing are connected, okay? And, and for me, what that does, it, it allows room for God's choice to not interfere with or replace our choice. Or you can say that vice versa, that our choice doesn't interfere with or get in the way of God's choice. That somehow both of those things work together beautifully, right? He for foreknows, whatever that means. Some people say, well, that means he foreloved. And other people will say, oh no, that's just talking about what he knew. He, he looked forward and he knew. Okay? And, and trying to figure out exactly how that works, I don't know if we're ever going to do it. And I know for sure we're never all going to agree on it. Right? But what I do know, it's a beautiful thing for a believer to say that I have a God who is my Father in Heaven who chose me and knows me. That's a good thing. And so I hope that we can we can rest in that. You must know who you are. You must know that your, your identity, it's not in, as a citizen of Canada or a citizen of America or a citizen of Bithynia or Pontus or any of those places. That isn't your identity anymore. And I mean, when I think about this, I usually think about American Christians who are like, I don't know, they're Christians and American and they're not really sure which first. That isn't how it's supposed to be, right? I mean, Canada is a wonderful country and I love the country. It's beautiful. But I am a believer in Christ, and the fact that I live in Canada is really inconsequential to my eternal state, right? And so uh, we are Christians, we're believers, we are ultimately strangers in this land. And I think that has some consequences for us. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in trying to force our government to, to see things exactly the way we see them, and do exactly what we do, that we forget that this actually isn't the land where that's supposed to happen. I'm not, I'm not against Christians being in government. I'm not against voting the way you're supposed to. I think that because we have the right, we ought to use it. But, but when you think about that, we are citizens of this land because someday we will have a perfect place to live, a new heaven and a new earth. So let's not get so wrapped up in changing government laws here on earth when they're just temporary anyway. Right? I think that's important for us to say our goal, our job as believers is first to get the gospel to people. And and everything else we do should align with that goal. And nothing should come in the way of that goal. Know who you are. No matter where you are, no matter where you find yourself tonight, your identity, if you're a believer in Christ, is as a son or a daughter of God, a citizen of heaven. And so you must know that. The second thing is, you must know what you are here for. How does this election by God work itself out? And we're told in verse 2, 
through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. So the word sanctifying literally means the setting apart. And so the Spirit of God sets you apart, but he sets you apart for a purpose, right? He sets you apart to God, but for a purpose. And the purpose is to obedience and the sprinkling of blood. Okay, now the the sprinkling of blood, let's deal with that first because that's the part that's the most interesting. When you look at the Old Testament, um, there's three times that the sprinkling of blood is used. The sprinkling of blood is used for the cleansing of a leper. It's used for the sprinkling of priests to cleanse them during ordination. And it was used in the sprinkling when the covenant of Moses was inaugurated. And the idea, again, was to cleanse the people before this covenant was inaugurated, right? And so what he's doing here is he's using this picture, this analogy of something being cleansed. And what's supposed to happen here, what the Spirit of God is setting you part to, is the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, the cleansing, the forgiving by the blood of Christ. And so that is what you're being set apart to. That is the work that the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in your life. The cleansing of the blood of Christ is happening through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the first thing that's happening. But I think it is amazing, because when we say that, immediately it's like, yes, that's salvation. But in the exact same breath, he uses salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, grace, and he also says, we're also sanctified or set apart to obedience. Well, it's two things. We usually like to really separate them, don't we? We like to say, okay, there's this salvation and then some people choose to obey and some people just just don't ever. And listen, I, I am not saying that believers are perfect. We are far, far from perfect. But what I'm saying is, true faith in the blood of Christ, it changes you. And that, I mean, it's that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. So if you have the Holy Spirit of God, it, it seems like one thing can't function well while the other thing is completely not present. Okay? You've been sanctified or set apart by the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood. Those two things. Your obedience will be imperfect very often. But there must be some kind of desire for obedience. There must be some kind of growth. And if there's not, on the authority of the Word of God here in so many other places, you should check out your salvation. There should be some desire for obedience in the life of the believer. And if there's not, there is a problem, a real problem. And the solution isn't to to start trying to staple fruit onto your life. The solution is to go, do I have the Spirit of God living in me? Because if the Spirit of God is living in me, then I have forgiveness and I have this new desire for obedience to Christ. So know who you are, that you're a stranger in this land, You're not a citizen. You're a citizen of heaven. And know what you're here for. You're here so that you can be cleansed and forgiven and so that you can go out and you can obey and follow Christ. Finally, Peter concludes this very beginning few verses with a a desire, kind of a prayer for these people. He says at the end of verse 2, Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Often in Roman letters back then, 
many, many letters begin with something along the same lines, but, but rather than saying grace unto you and peace, they say greetings to you and peace. And so what Peter does is he takes this, this normal kind of form letter introduction and he makes it Christian, right? But when you think about what he's saying to these people who are called to that task, I think it means a lot more. When he says grace unto you and peace be multiplied, and he's just told them who they are, they're strangers, and implicit in that is that they're going to suffer and and struggle and have a lot of difficulty, and that they're there to be sanctified and and to be cleansed, but to obey and to follow Christ. When when they're that's what who they are, that's what they're there for. And then he says, and you're going to need grace. My prayer for you is that you have grace and peace be multiplied. Now, peace in the lives of these people is going to be very, very difficult because they live in a world that hates them, right? Darkness hates light. It's always going to happen. A lie always hates the truth. If you're a liar, you never want the truth to be exposed, right? That's exactly what's happening in the world around these people. And yet in the midst of that, Peter says you can have grace and you can have peace that is multiplied in your life. Why? Because you're a citizen of heaven. Because you have a God who can give you that kind of grace. See, grace isn't something you can manufacture. Grace is a gift. And so Peter says you can have peace and you can have God's grace despite whatever circumstances you're going through. In these first two verses of 1 Peter, there's a lot there. I mean, theologically, there's a lot of issues. I, I, honestly, when I was studying, I was trying to figure out exactly how to present this. My mind went in a hundred different places. Do you cover doctrines? Do you, do you just just deal with like the specific things said? I mean, how many rabbit trails can you go on? Because there's many, many here that you could. And I did my best to stick to what I think is there in the text. And there in the text, we see that we must know who we are. We must be have a firm grip on ourselves as citizens of heaven. We must know what we're here doing. That we've been washed and cleansed and forgiven, and now we're to live a life of obedience. And we can be encouraged that there is grace and peace available for us on whatever journey we're going on. And that's Peter's encouragement. That's his beginning of his letter. The letter is packed. It's a wonderful letter. But it's written to people who are suffering. And that's how he begins. And so may we leave this place knowing who we are, what we're here for, and taking comfort that no matter what happens to us in this life, there's grace and peace available from, our, from God our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.